Hi, everyone. Welcome. It's Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, and I am sitting here all by myself. I am waiting for my provider to come or call in. We have with us tonight Dr. Alexander Palesti, who is a surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital. I'll tell you a little bit more about him. But poor Dr. Palesti called me, and he got tied up in a trauma at the hospital and then um, had to see a couple of patients. So hopefully he's able to either get here or call in from his car pretty soon. Um, we are going to focus tonight. We're going to continue our conversation end the month with uh, colorectal awareness, and we're going to talk a lot about colorectal cancer. We're going to talk about screening for colorectal cancer and all the different tests that there are. There are a few other ones out there that we want to talk about. And then we're going to talk about the latest in techniques uh, for colorectal cancer. So to eat up a little bit of time, I'm going to indulge um, by telling you about some programs um, that we have coming up at St. Mary's Hospital. Um, as you know, and I talk about it quite frequently, we are a Spirit of Women Hospital. And last week on March 22nd, we had our first event of the year called Gen- Generate health. Now, the theme this year is generate health. Basically, um, the theme for this year is focusing on all the different generations. So, generate health. Our first event, March twenty second, was held at the Aria in Prospect, and um, it was an incredible um, presentation by a panel of our providers. We chose a primary care provider, an endocrinologist, and a, and a OBGYN, all from the community. Um, the endocrinologist was Dr. Shilpachetti, who is one of our newest additions to the Franklin family um, at St. Mary's Hospital. Actually, I've had her on um, a couple of times already. She um, talked a lot about um, endocrinology and women of Generation X. Now, Generation X is anyone that's born after the year 1965 again, I, I believe, which counted me out. Unfortunately, I fall into that baby boomer being born in 1960, but she focused on some of the issues that women have with being tired and weight gain and stress and fatigue, did an incredible job, and then... That's everybody, Johnny. I know. But, you know, that Generation X thinks it's only them. I have two kids that have fallen to Generation X. I think they think it's only them. So we address that for women. And alongside her, we had Dr. Maysoon Ritchie, who's also one of our newer additions um, at St. Mary's for in the Franklin family. She is not... Dr. Assis Ritchie, which is her husband, the general surgeon who's been a surgeon here um, in the greater Waterbury area for many, many years, an incredible provider at St. Mary's. But this is his wife, Maysoon Ritchie. She is in private practice um, with the Franklin Medical Group out in Southbury, a primary care physician again. And she's with Dr. Um, Mary Beth Aquavia and Dr. Carolyn O'Connor. I'm doing this all from the top of my head, Johnny, so pretty good that I know where they all are, right? So they in Union Square in Southbury. And she talked a lot about the same issues from a primary care perspective and how your primary care provider acts as your quarterback for health and guiding you towards those specialists. And it's really, really important to ensure that you have that primary care provider in your life that is quarterbacking your health. I think that's one of the most important relationships because they keep all your health records together. They get a copy of all your reports. And sometimes going to the individual specialists, they don't always 
have the opportunity to connect all the links. But if your reports are going back to a primary care physician, they sometimes will see a link or something that's a warning sign. So she did talk a lot about that. And then we also had with us um, Dr. Arena Magadina, who is an OBGYN with Naugatuck Valley Women's Health Specialist. And Dr. Magadina also focusing somewhat on the same issues, but from her specialty's point of view and some of the tricks and things that you can do and what you should be doing of women in the Generation X. Alongside them, we had... um, Chaplain Jerry, Jerilyn Capobianca, who is a chaplain at St. Mary's Hospital, and she did an incredible presentation on meditation and trying to set the tone for the evening and helping everyone to relax and be meditated. So it was an incredible program. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go to our next event. So now the next event is going to be May 10th. And on May 10th, we have our huge Sparkle event. Now, Sparkle, this is our third one. And we do it at the uh, AquaTurf in Southington. And last year's count was about 800 women. I yeah. think we're doing a radio show. We now. are, Johnny. I was just going to tell right. them about that. We are actually going to be broadcasting live that night. All right. From uh, the the uh, AquaTurf. So I with get to Spir- sparkle. You get to sparkle. <laughs> and I, I believe Larry Rifkin's going to be at the helm with me. I, I think you're right. Yes. Well, we're doing that evening, which is really neat. That's the night where we have um, the huge um, banquet room, both um, Case Pier North and South, filled with per, um, providers in the area along with all different types of um, health resources for you to tap into. Some really neat things this year. I'm probably going to mess this up, but it had to do with the uh, Farmington Trails and um, like moms and strollers, talking about exercise with moms and strollers. So there's a whole group of women who do this, and I know I'm misspeaking on who the group is. I'll get that to you, but it's really neat. So we have a bunch of really neat providers um, joining us and being part of that room and our community partners. So we're really excited. We usually have around 25 to 30 vendors in that room, and they're really they're just promoting good health and and uh, talking about how to feel healthy, look healthy, and be healthy. I think Onyx Jewelers has agreed to come, too. Because we thought it would be really, they're, they're an incredible community partner for us at St. Mary's. We thought it would be really fun to have them there talking a little bit about costume jewelry and how you can dress yourself up. So, I mean, you know, yeah, that's, that's better a healthy than mind. Yeah, than having all that health Right, because we have yeah. a lot of health talk in that well room. But we have some too. fun, too, right. <laughs> and then we're doing something really special, and I'm not at liberty to tell it yet. Yeah, um, oh, Catherine Walker. Nice. Yeah, Catherine Walker, our millennial of our group, um, our, our community outreach specialist. She's amazing. None of us could survive without her. But she had this really neat idea for something a little different um, for the ladies to get involved in that light night and kind of make a statement and make a statement about themselves and about their health. So we're really excited. And then the highlight of the night, and that's because this is my room, it's called Dessert with the Docs. So that's the room uh, where Larry's going to be in. So Dessert oh with the good. Docs. You put us with yeah, dessert. you put you with dessert. Right. So that room has around 30 providers, all of very different um, disciplines. All healthy desserts. <laughs> all of very healthy, 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 healthy desserts. That's, that's Sweet Maria's room, too. She's in charge of that. All so, right. yeah. I mean, you can indulge a little, right, Johnny? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> 
can definitely indulge. It's okay to have that little treat. <laughs> so the providers will be of de- all different disciplines. Um, we have everything from um, ENT, cardiology, our breast surgeons, All I believe all three of them, we're going to get to be there. We're going to have someone there, um, Yvonne Ruddy-Stein, who I had on with me a couple weeks back. Yvonne's going to be there. She's our APRN um, in Dr. Polakoff's office and works with Dr. Sealing and Dr. Sukan. She's going to be there talking about genetic uh, genetics. And we're also going to have with us, um, I believe we're going to have endocrinology. I believe Dr. Shilpachetti. We're going to definitely have... Um, robotic surgery. So we're going to be talking about surgery. We're going to have pain specialists there. We're going to have urology, OBGYN, I think I said. Um, we're going to definitely have neurology there. So we have we have a ton of disciplines that are going to be part of our night. And the reason we call it with dessert with the docs is Maria uh, Sanchez from Sweet Maria. We don't know what we would do out her as our community partner. She's going to do her beautiful cupcake tower in that room um, blanketed by other desserts. Now the other desserts are spread out amongst the specialties and she does a really neat thing with creating a specialty dessert for each and every specialty. As an example last year she did a really neat one for um, the podiatrist, Dr. Vinoker. She did um, these really neat fancy shoes and sugar cookies. She did. You're good. Because, I, you know, I was looking around. I thought there was a thing, a flyer about Sparkle. For and you. there is. But you, I can't oh, I, find it. You can't find it. You see, I don't even need it. <laughs> you don't need it. I don't it. even need it. I don't even need it. Well, you know, we're really passionate about it. We're really passionate about Spirit of Women, and it's an incredible team led by Barb White, who is the marketing director over at St. Mary's and working regionally now with Trinity Health New England and Women's Health Services. And we, as part of her supportive team, I myself supporting her with my physician team and her rest of the team um, with with Catherine Walker being, as I said earlier, our absolute go-to person, and Jennifer Clement, who is our communication specialist, handling all the media, whether it be the newspaper, whether it be uh, communications on Facebook, and making sure she keeps us in task and getting the message out and interviewing physicians. It's a really great team. And uh, Spirit of Women, if you haven't partake, had the opportunity to partake in any of the events, I so encourage you. And even if Sparkle is your first one, it will set the tone for you. And if you want to become a Spirit of Women member, um, please go on our website, stmh.org. And up at the very top bar, it says Spirit of Women. And you can click on that, and it will bring you to the Spirit of Women page where it has all different types of uh, health promotions and how to become a spirit member, finding a physician, and it also has our events calendar, and you can click on that, and the event calendar will tell you of all of our events. And then might as well go on to the events for the rest of the year. We will be having one in the summer, and the one in the summer, because we're on the generations, is going to be for the millennials. So we are going to be doing something really neat. Places to be determined, and the name of it will be to be determined. But we're going to be doing something really neat with something called 3D printing. Um, I believe that's going to be part of our presentation. We really want to get to the techie aspect of those millennials and show them some of the neat things that we're doing at St. Mary's and how progressive we are with our surgeries. Just think of the future with that, though. You could could make uh, maybe even... 
body parts. Well, oh, and that's what, well, and I'll tell you, Dr. Corvo was doing a presentation this morning in a 7 o'clock meeting I had, <laughs> um, but he was doing a presentation and showing a 3D printing, right, and, right. It's, and it's actually, it comes out being almost like a model, Right. and right. it's a 3D image of your own body part that's going to have the surgery. So this particular one was a heart, right. and um, the story behind part of this was the 3D image of a heart from a child that the child was so small and needed heart surgery and they needed to see the intricacies and they needed to practice on it and this 3d image that's done it's not used in the body but it's used to for the surgeon to understand how to do the surgery better right and Amazing. how to have success it's really incredible I mean, you, think about it. you need a spare part for your car in the future right. you go in the house do a 3d <laughs> printing of it this is exactly what i need I mean, right it's a little weird you know it's a little weird to me you know and i just can't believe that it's almost like you know it's the space age yeah but it's yeah. definitely really well it's stuff exciting. like that's going to help us get to mars because if yeah. something breaks definitely on your way to mars you ain't going back you ain't going back right and we need it right we're going to need to get back johnny so, only you would think of that no, so we're really technology. we so think really we think that's a really neat thing yeah. and and it oh it opens it up to all ages so you know we want to target that millennial group who really are you know, they that really think they're, stuff. they think they're infamous, you know, with their health, they don't think they'll ever get sick, what, but they're intrigued by medicine. technology. Right. So Incredible. we're, we're excited. Not sure that we're going to hopefully partner with one of the colleges or, or something else locally. So more to come on that. And then the last event of the year will be October 19th. This one uh, we do know about. And that one, I believe is at La Bella Vista. And that one is the baby boomers <laughs> and the greatest generation <laughs> and the greatest generation. And we're going to be doing a panel again and we're going to be hitting all the topics that affects the greatest generation and the baby boomers and as you very well know they're synonymous a lot of the times as we get older we all have the same thing whether it be arthritis whether it be cancer you know I mean as we get older the risk for those go up I know cardiac (laughs) issues you know so as you get older you you know you fall to that and you know with the baby boomers taking care of the greatest generation okay. at times. You doctor. know, uh oh. Uh-oh. I have a visitor. You he do? came here in okay, person. Now you oh. can talk about the real subject. Now we can talk. Yeah, but we did really well. I carried it through. Dr. Palesti has just joined us. We're going to go to a quick break and come right back and start with Dr. Palesti. Welcome back, everyone. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, medically speaking. And I'm so glad that my physician joined me because I was just at the end of what I could talk about with Spirit of Women. But I think I got it all in. I think I filled it in. As I you, talked as you, her off the ledge during the break. So yeah, he talked me off the ledge, so we're good. So back to our topic of choice and our premier topic for tonight and we're talking again about colorectal cancer and where it's colorectal cancer awareness month and as i said to you earlier we really wanted to focus on the screenings what we do for screenings for colorectal uh, cancer why they're so important what is the best source of screening and then talk a little bit about the latest in technology and i have with me tonight my colleague my friend and our surgeon extraordinaire Dr. Alexander Prelassi, how is that for an intro? That's more impressive than 
The reality is. <laughs> no, sir. So Dr. Plesti um, has been part of this community since birth because his dad was um, a physician here. Dr. Plesti was, oh, my gosh, an ENT here for many, many years. And I worked with him, so just saying. Well, I had just graduated nursing school, so. Our, our paths definitely crossed. Absolutely. He's an incredible, incredible physician. But I started my career a little bit differently than my dad. You did. I was mopping the OR floors <laughs> as a kid as a summer job, and that's kind of my backward entrance into medicine. It wasn't some love <laughs> of science or these glorified stories. It was just a love of the environment that's and the people. Right. You know, it's true. I started my career at St. Mary's Hospital as a volunteer at the age of 14, and I was on the old Xavier three, and fell in love with orthopedics, fell in love with the nurses. And uh, when I graduated from, I went, became a nurse because of them. And when I graduated, I went back, to, that's where I started my career, back in Xavier three. And there's something about St. Mary's, right? Absolutely. That's and why I think you and I get along. So you and I are so connected because we just have this passion. It's like our house, our home, right? It's true. It's a family, unlike most other places. It is. It's really. It is. Well, I'm sorry. I have my pocketbook still on the table here. <laughs> I was just about to go through. You're it. about to go through it. Yeah, you're not going to find all that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, what brought you into the field of surgery? Um, I think it was more my love for the people and the patients, uh, and then secondly, I think it was the technical component of surgery that appealed to me. Um, the fact that you could combat a problem right up front and solve it. Uh, ultimately, it's all about immediate gratification, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's true, right? It's <laughs> so, so true. And I think with surgery, you know, surgery affords that opportunity. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, and you are, um, just give a little bit of your background because I think it's really important to say it, that you currently serve as our director of the residency training program in surgery, and you are the director of surgical oncology at the Stanley J. Dudrick Department of Surgery at St. Mary's. I want to make sure we throw that out there. That's right. Any other hats you're wearing right so now? So I have 15 children <laughs> and only one of my own. No. <laughs> yes, I get it, right? 15 children being your residents, that's right? That's correct. That's a, and that's a challenge. Right, I'm sure with the residency program, how do you how do you balance that and do surgeries, you know, and concentrate on your patients at the same time? It is a little bit of a juggling act, but I think you know, keeping things in perspective, you have to always remember that there is a generation of people that is going to need to take care of us ultimately when we need surgery or an operation. So it behooves me and it behooves my patients to uh, train all of these people so that they can better take care of us when it comes time. Um, patience is definitely a virtue. Um, I'm learning how to deal with uh, the new generation of, of, I guess it's more of a mindset than an individual. So it's uh, it's a moving target, but it's a pleasure. And, you know, the thanks that you get when you see them succeed, I think, mitigates everything else that you contend with on a daily basis. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I go to the patient safety meeting every morning that I know I've spoken before about to this audience, but um, the residents are in there in the morning giving their report, and um, they are very engaged. They're very engaged, and they're, especially this group, 
they're very engaged and they're very uh, knowing of their patients and concerned and bring up issues when they feel an issue needs to be brought up. They don't just run in and run out of the room. Right. You know, and I think that's so important. And I'm sure that has to do with your tutelage and the ability to make them care more. Well, we try and instill in them through example. Right. right. So, um, and I, I think that forum's a neat forum because as you, you know, attend that forum uh, over time, I think it's very gratifying to watch how they mature from when they start as an intern and then when they become a chief um, to just see the maturity level and how they express themselves. That's and really neat. The fact that uh, they're actually almost there. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> so, tonight we want to talk a little bit about a lot of actually the rest of our night about colorectal cancer and how did you go down the path of oncology surgery how did you get that passion i mean you do general surgery too right in regards, so but. i um i wound up doing a fellowship in surgical oncology because of my mentors more than anything else mm-hmm. um i I had the opportunity to spend three months at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York during my fourth year of residency and really became engaged with, one, the patient population. Mm-hmm. I think um, patients who have cancer are probably some of the most appreciative patients and are some of the most understanding patients when it comes to doing surgery that's somewhat outlandish because Mm -hmm. they really have the passion to survive. Um, So I think it was really the patient population that I became engaged with. And then again, second was the technical components of some of the more complex operations that we did. Um, And the relationship that you build with the staff and and sort of the multimodality care where everybody's engaged in patient care. So that's what motivated me to pursue my fellowship up at Roswell Park um, for two years after I finished my residency. It's incredible. It's a great journey. And it brought you back to us, too, which I think is awesome. You know, coming back home, you're a local boy, coming back. Local boy, giving back. Local boy, giving back. And you do every day, every day. You never say no to me, that's for sure. No. Anytime I need something, How you never can say, you say no to oh, me. I don't, well, my husband does. <laughs> 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 so I want to, before we go into the surgical aspect, I want to talk about the screening process for colorectal cancer. And I know you, it's very passionate to you because you do see so many people that could have been caught so much earlier. So let's talk about the screening process and what is the best way to be screened and how it should be done? So the standard of care still remains a colonoscopy for screening starting at the age of 50, provided that you don't have any first or second degree relatives who have had colon cancer in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, If you did have a relative who had colorectal cancer um, early on, let's say you had a relative who was diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 42, then you would really uh, want to have your screening done 10 years prior to that. So at the age of 32 would be your first colonoscopy. 10 years prior to the diagnosis Correct. of the relative. Okay. But, you know, a lot of times people ask the question, well, why 50? I mean, who who well, arbitrarily yeah. came up with 50 because <laughs> you're expected to live to 100, so halfway there. <laughs> but <laughs> the reality of it is is that the majority of cancers don't start to be detectable until that age, and they did a, a randomized study, and, and they found that the majority of, of cancers were diagnosed in and around 50. So usually 
polyps that may have cancer in them start few years before that. So doing colonoscopies earlier really wasn't getting much bang for the buck. Doing it later, we found, you know, we were having more advanced cancers diagnosed. So 50 is kind of the period of time where uh, you get the most bang for your buck with a screening colonoscopy. So when someone has a colonoscopy at the age of 50 and they ha- and you don't see any polyps and there's no strong family history, they generally make them wait to have another one about 10 years? Is that the case? Generally speaking, it's 10 years. And why... Why not sooner? You know, we do our mammograms every single year. We do certain tests every single year. Why Why is it that 10 mark? And is that safe? Or is there any new, new studies that say it isn't? So I think first it's important to, to just say that all cancers aren't the same. Right. So breast cancer, you know, cancer is like saying car. So, you know, well, what kind of car is it? And each car is different and it has different... Um, features in it and cancers are the same way so cancer is just sort of an overall catch term and then you have your different cancers like breast cancer like colon cancer like pancreatic cancer all of which act very differently so the reason that screening is so frequent with breast cancer is because it tends to form more quickly in the sense that cells can can um, deteriorate and start having cancerous changes more frequently in terms of the turnover. Colon cancer, on the other hand, takes a little bit longer to develop. So if you have a clean colonoscopy, the likelihood of something aberrant developing prior to that 10-year mark is very low. So that's how uh, we've come to that conclusion. And really, that standard has remained the same. There's been no significant changes in terms of doing it earlier or different testing or anything of that nature. When you do the colonoscopy, when they do the colonoscopies, the gastroenterology, and I go, no, surgeons can also do them. Correct. The I do my own colonoscopies right. uh, as well as some of the other surgeons within our institution. So when, they, when you do the colonoscopy, if you see a polyp, are all polyps cancerous, precancerous? Can a polyp, you take it out, do all polyps become cancerous? How does that work? Because when people hear the word polyp, I think it, it has different meanings to it, to some. Right. So... Polyp is sort of the broad term for an abnormal growth in the colon. Um, those polyps can either be benign, meaning non-cancerous, or malignant, meaning cancerous, or somewhere in between. And that's kind of the importance of removing them. So having a benign polyp removed means that nothing further has to be done, and the likelihood of, well, nothing further has to be done. The thing with polyps is that all polyps can eventually turn into a cancer. We unfortunately at this point don't know which ones have the propensity to turn into it and which ones don't, so we remove all of them. Um, there are times when we'll f- take out polyps and we'll find precancerous changes within the polyp, and depending on the type of polyp being, there are flat polyps and then there are polyps that kind of look like a mushroom that have a stalk, depending upon where that precancerous change is in that polyp, particularly the ones with a stalk, you may need to follow that with an operation to remove that segment of the colon. Um, The flat ones, uh, oftentimes those precancerous changes will, you would encourage your patient to have uh, an operation for it, depending upon 
how far along that pre-malignant pathway that polyp is. And when it's flat and it's closer to the lining there, so it would spread. It seemed like it would be more apt to spread. It's it's more apt to spread, but more is the challenge of removing it completely mm-hmm. during the colonoscopy. Okay. So at least with one of those sort of mushroom-like or, or what we call pedunculated or polyps on a stalk, if you take and snare the base of it and take it out right at the lining and the cancer is somewhere up near the head of the mushroom, well, it's not such a big deal. But with one of the sessile or flat polyps, if you take it out and there's some cancer somewhere near the base of it, you don't know whether or not it's lower down right. and has invaded into that first or second layer of the colon, so you're more likely to err on the side of taking the colon out rather than wait. And again, it depends on how far along that precancerous pathway that polyp has changes. So, you know, just so the audience is clear, it's so important to get your colonoscopies because we can get these. Once you remove the polyp, nine times out of ten, you've removed the source of the problem from becoming a problem. Correct. Right. Correct, and that's that's why it's the, you don't the want importance of, of a screening colonoscopy. Um, you know, by removing benign polyps, you prevent them from becoming bad. Because there's other methods out there for screening that people use. Now, like one test that's commonly done, and we used to do it all the time for patients on the floor, was to check their stool for blood. Why is that done, and is and is a negative on that a false sense of security? The reason that's a false sense of security is because in order for you to have blood in your stool, you would either need a polyp that were bleeding or you would actually have a more advanced cancer that has eroded and is a bleeding source. Most polyps don't bleed spontaneously unless patients may be on blood thinners and and they're constipated and the friction from the stool passing that polyp causes them to bleed. Most polyps don't spontaneously bleed, so fecal occult blood tests aren't really a great standalone test. There are some people who may advocate a fecal occult blood test with what's called a sigmoidoscopy, which is um, a short version of a colonoscopy, meaning that it only goes up into the first 25, 30 centimeters of the colon. But again, you're leaving three quarters of the colon out of your screen. So that's not exactly right. one of the better methods. Of testing. Um, I was at a presentation oh, a few months back, and um, uh, someone in the audience asked about the Cologuard. Which right. is that, yeah. So I'm not so sure if all the audience knows what that is, but I wanted to talk sure. about that. Yeah. I want to talk about what that is and maybe um, let them know. You know, they, she said, oh, is it a good test for me to do? Can I do that? And it's where they shows if there's any issues or problems when you, it's something that you actually put into the, to the toilet itself. So Cologuard is one of those things that's really more of a mass media marketing tool. (laughs) Um, And interestingly, just as a quick aside, I think, you know, I happened to put on the NCAA tournament the other day, and I was absolutely floored by how many pharmaceutical commercials there (laughs) There were on that. It's so true. Not for, like, normal drugs, for very hardcore, serious drugs that are very specified for certain issues. And what I found humorous is, is that 
everybody's living the life of Riley. Yeah. Like, nothing's yeah. wrong if you take this drug. So true. Right? So true. And here we have a problem with health care and the cost of drugs. And if these pharmaceutical companies just kind of took the millions of dollars they're, they're spending on advertising, on advertising and actually put it into lowering the cost of drugs, we might, we might get somewhere. Exactly. Agreed. But again, these are heart failure drugs. I mean, these are very specific drugs. It's pretty scary. Anyway, so back to the Cologuard. It's an imperfect science at this point. I think it's a good start um, towards something. But again, it, this should be for a specific patient right. population with a family history. Um, I think if you're going to get into the genetics of things, and I think you probably would be better off with um, genetic, true genetic testing mm -hmm. to identify whether or not you have any of the genes that are associated with colon cancer. We had Yvonne on a couple of weeks ago, Yvonne Redestein, mm -hmm. and Yvonne, you know, Yvonne is, is um, certified in genetics, and it was interesting, and you know, she was talking about you know, you don't. You just don't realize how much work goes into sitting there and, and educating the patient. And it's not. And that's before they even do a test. You know, but just really looking at that family history and making sure it's the right thing to do. It's looking at the family history. It's a lot of counseling right. the patient. I think a lot of the patients who come in looking for genetic testing are wound up about something that they heard. They may not even be a candidate for genetic testing, but a friend or a friend of a friend suggested that they have it for some reason. Um, you know, I think with genetic testing, people are under the assumption oftentimes that it's for anybody, but right. there are really very specific indications for um, people to have genetic testing, most particularly having a family history or a syndrome of people who have had specific types of cancers right. in their family that would make you more susceptible. The other type of testing, um, which has been around for a while, but somewhat controversial in nature but appropriate for certain patients, is the virtual colonoscopy. So virtual colonoscopy, if you're a techie, is really kind of a neat thing. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's uh, good at identifying polyps, tumors, but you can't do anything about it. You can't diagnose whether it's truly a cancer because you can't biopsy it. You, if you identify a polyp, you still have to have a colonoscopy to have it right. removed. So it's really a true diagnostic tool, not a diagnostic and therapeutic tool. Um, and it's really invasive as well. People assume, oh, it's just a CT scan, but mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that you do have to have a bowel prep. You do have a um, tube that's placed through the anus into the rectum to inflate the colon with air so that you have a contrast between, uh, and you can expand the colon so that you can see the polyps. And it's really not great at identifying tumors less than a centimeter in size, mm -hmm. which, you know, for most males is probably the width of your index finger. Mm -hmm. um, so anything smaller than that, it's not really good at identifying. So you miss those tumors. 
Um, virtual colonoscopy is really reserved, I think, in my mind for patients who can't necessarily undergo a colonoscopy because of cardiac or pulmonary issues or some other factor that may not allow them to uh, withstand the procedure. Because they're not because they're not put under because they're not in, they're not sedated. It's that they're not. Right. Well, so they yes. don't have to go under the propofol Correct. to be sedated. So Correct. anybody that's got the cardiac issues that maybe of lower risk, has no family history, it could be an option. Correct. And again, this is a, a new science. Virtual colonoscopy has been around for about 10 years, and I think as technology improves, so will the accuracy of it. Um, but at this point, it's not a standard of care, nor is it ideal. Yeah, and I think the misconception around it is the fact that you can't, uh, that you still have to do the prep. So if you do the prep, then you might have to do the prep twice. Right. And Especially if we see a polyp, and now you got to make an appointment with a, col- a, a gastroenterologist or a surgeon and now have another colonoscopy. Correct. <laughs> Correct. So if something's identified, something still has to be done. Right. So instead of taking two days off, you're going to take four days off. Right. <laughs> one for the prep and one for the colonoscopy. So moving forward, once you identify someone, let's talk a little bit about surgical techniques and some of the, you know, you do a great presentation on the your surgical techniques and some of the latest things that are happening in, you know, we've had robotics in play at St. Mary's. I know that's been an incredible tool for you. So maybe we talk a little bit about robotics and some of the things that you do. And if you do have a question, 203-757-1320, we're happy to entertain your questions. So go ahead. Let's talk a little bit about the surgical piece. I think um, St. Mary's has really been in the forefront for, for a while, although we recently, and I'll say recently being in the last five years of wholeheartedly adopt robotics, um, we've really been ahead of the curve in terms of minimally invasive or otherwise termed laparoscopic surgery. So we've been doing that for colons, um, doing colon resections minimally invasively for going on 25 years now. We were one of the first institutions in the state of Connecticut to even do laparoscopy, so we've always kind of been ahead of the curve on that. And... um, I think one of the misconceptions when you do minimally invasive surgery is that the magnitude of the operation is smaller. And the reality of it is the magnitude of the operation is just as great. It's just that your incisions are smaller, which allow you to recover in an improved fashion. And sometimes I wish we still did the big zipper-type incisions because it would slow patients down. Because they want to get back to their normal life so quickly, right, and not take it take it. They back. do, and they think they can. Right. You know, and, and then right. I think expectations are, well, I only have four little holes. I should be able to do this by day five. Oh. Um, and so people's expectations of themselves, I think, change when you don't have such mm. a large incision. Um, so... I think all of us at St. Mary's do minimally invasive laparoscopic colon resections, and the way that that's changed the face of things is, as I said, it's a much shorter time to recovery in terms of getting out of the hospital. It's much less of an insult on the physiology of the body in terms of recovery, and you can get back to work and to your normal daily activities more quickly. Robotics is sort of the next step on that continuum where now some of our colon patients will leave two days after an operation and have very minimal amounts of pain. Can you imagine that, two days after colon resection? 
and do well. Right. But again, the issue becomes keeping them aware of the fact that you can't just bounce back and expect to do what you normally Still do once you, leave the op- yeah, once you leave the hospital. So, And I think robotics has been you know, particularly helpful for us when we're doing pelvic surgery or mm. surgery on the rectum, which is the last part of the um, the GI tract before the anus. You know, when you're doing operations in that very narrow space, um, and just to allow the audience to conceptualize it, it would be like operating in a funnel. And so you have a large funnel, and inside that funnel you have a medium funnel, which is the, the rectum that you're trying to remove. And basically you're operating in that circumferential space around that funnel. So when we used to do these operations open, basically your entire hand would occupy that space. And now with robotics and the instrumentation that we have, um, we can work in that space quite easily. And because of the optics on the robotic cameras, you can see very well. So it really makes the operation easier. It decreases the uh, amount of post-operative complications like erectile dysfunction in males, um, urinary issues in, in both populations of patients, and brings that down um, significantly. One of the things that I believe you mentioned to me was in years past there were more and more people that had had colonoscopies, but that's reduced somewhat. Not colonoscopies, I'm sorry, um, had uh, bags after surgery. Correct, I think. And how, so how has surgery changed in allowing us not to have someone have to have a bag on their abdomen after a resection? I think it's not just surgery alone. I think it's advances in medicine as a whole. Mm. I think, you know, we have very powerful antibiotics now that can manage a lot of the infections that may occur, um, which will allow us to put the bowel back together um, with more of a sense of security. I think we also have significant improvements in our technology, particularly stapling devices, Mm -hmm. which allow us to do an anastomosis um, in areas that we couldn't necessarily do it before. Um, So I think those are two significant factors that have changed it. And with minimally invasive surgery and some of the robotic surgery, with the rectal surgery that we were just discussing, we can actually operate and get down much lower in the pelvis than we could before because of the visualization and the instrumentation um, so that we can take these tumors out without having to... uh, compromise some of the blood supply and be unable to perform an anastomosis. Because back when I was in nursing school and and just after, um, I saw many patients with colostomies, many patients. And, you know, it was such a life-changing thing, and I think that's what everyone's fear is when they think of colonoscopies, when they think of colorectal cancer, and then they think I'd have to have surgery and I'm going to end up with the back. I think that's probably the most common question that I am right. asked when I am counseling patients preoperatively for any type of colon surgery is, is I, am I going to have a bag? Right. Um, is this a possibility? Because that's so scary. It is. Yeah. On the flip side, though, you'd be surprised how many people you know that have a bag. You would never um, know. That you would never realize. Um, I think our technology for appliances and for uh 
odor control, mm -hmm. and uh, I think it just makes it more, or rather, less difficult to contend with. Um, so, when uh, when someone is faced with uh, a colostomy, but are they as temporary? Do you have cases where they're temporary, and then then you can do surgeries down the line? There are cases that are temporary with surgeries down the line. Generally speaking, those are more for benign disease processes like diverticulitis oh. that may have had a perforation that you can't do your anastomosis in the face of the soilage, so okay. you bring out a temporary colostomy, and then six weeks later, you'll go back and put them that back together. Just so it'll have a chance to heal. Correct. Okay. Most of the time at this point, if we are doing a colostomy, which is otherwise known as a bag, for colon cancer operations, it's usually in one of two settings. One, where the cancer is either so large or it's, it's adhered to other organs that you can't take the segment out, so you bring out um, the colostomy in order to allow the stool to escape. Um, so it's essentially bypassing that blockage. Wow. Um, or if it's a very, very low cancer down in the pelvis where you would not be able to do an anastomosis for one reason or another. Um, and then the third one is uh, <clears throat> if you have a cancer where you're not able to spare the sphincters, um, and you have to take out the entire sphincter complex because it's either in the anal canal, and you take that out, then you have to, by definition, create a, uh, a colostomy because you have to sew uh, the exit of the anus closed so there's no muscle to wow. control that. Who's the youngest patient you've had with colorectal cancer? The youngest patient I've had is 28. Wow. Wow. Very I didn't expect cancer. you to say that. Wow. Seems, um, and it, it's pretty well documented. Most people, most younger people who have uh, colorectal cancers generally have more aggressive cancers. However, they do well, um, probably because of their age, probably because they can tolerate the therapy afterwards. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of immunologic reasons that we don't quite fully understand um, why they tend to do well. But uh, if if you have a chance, there's a really cool <laughs> website called the Colander. Um, the Colander. Colander, C-O-L-O-N-D-A-R. Um, Johnny's going to Google it knowing you, Johnny. It's, it's really all about colon cancer survivors, and it's people proudly displaying their colostomies, proudly displaying their scars, and it tells their age, and it tells their story, and their stage, and, you know, how well they've done over the period of time from their operation to now, and whether or not they received uh, chemotherapy for colon cancer or chemotherapy and radiation for, for the rectal cancers. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of cool. Um, you know, all these young people, and a lot of the people are between 25 and 50 uh, who are in, in the calendar. And it's really a tribute to the fact that we can manage this disease as long mm -hmm. as we're given the chance. Now, someone that young... They wouldn't have gone for routine screening, so it is going to be advanced because 
it's going to all of a sudden be a symptom. Absolutely. Who right? would expect to have a cancer at 28 years old ah. with no family history, nothing of the sort? Um, so they do tend to be more advanced because what brings them into the hospital is a symptom right. like bleeding or like inability to evacuate their stool or abdominal pain, something of that nature. Now, someone that's 28, is that more genetic? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It can be sporadic. <laughs> wow. No, usually most people where it's genetic are in, in this day and age pretty well aware of the fact that, you know, if they had a first or second degree relative that they should be getting their colonoscopies early on. Right. Um, 28, still being young, but right. um, most of them are pretty acutely aware of any kind of GI symptoms that they have and are hypervigilant about it. Um, so I think many of these patients, it's just sporadic. It's just a combination. I'm sure it's a combination of genetics, but not familial or inherited genetics. It's so interesting. And, you know, as someone ages, you know, and they develop, they're more apt to develop colorectal cancer after a certain age, the population, or they just, you're more apt to all cancer. Well, after the age of 50 is, and that's again, that just mm. sort of reiterates right. the fact why we've chosen 50 as our uh, start for screening. So, in someone that has a first or second degree relative that developed cancer, colorectal cancer, say, I don't know, I'm going to say much later in life, after the age of 75 mm -hmm. or 80, do you consider that? a genetic link where someone should think about getting screened sooner. It's a genetic link. You wouldn't think about getting screened sooner, though, um, but it is a genetic link, and it may motivate you to have some genetic marker studies done um, if you fit into the category. Right. Again, you know, it's not just necessarily a family history of colon cancer. It may be a family history of pancreatic cancer, mm -hmm. um, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer. These are all sort of precursors to being involved uh, in a syndrome right. that's named Lynch, Lynch syndrome. Lynch, right. And there's also non-hereditary um, familial syndromes as well. You know, and I wanted to throw that out there because I think that there's so many people out there that just find a reason not to get it and say, well, I don't really have family history. I had a relative that had it late in their 70s and they were older and they smoked. And, you know, I mean, you can rationalize anything. Absolutely. If you really want to. Right? And, I, and I think that's the challenge is most of us do tend to rationalize things when something goes wrong. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that's not really that's a not, problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I'll be fine. No, absolutely. So I can't believe we're to the end. I know. Well, you're fashionably so late, so. <laughs> <laughs> but we got it. I think we got it all in. If you Hazards had, of the job. Hazard of the job, yeah, but doing, it, doing what you do best. So if you had to end with anything that you'd like to say to the audience, what would that be? I think it's sort of just reiterating and hammering home the importance of having your screening colonoscopy done at the appropriate time and not sort of blowing it off and saying, oh, well, I know I just turned 50, but 55, it won't make that much of a difference. It really does make a big difference, and you can save yourself a lot of headache, uh, mostly an operation that you don't necessarily need to have. So um, 
you know, the preps are better now. It's not the nightmare that it used to be. The whole um, gallon of the Go Lightly exactly. got big. <laughs> and it wasn't Go Lightly. <laughs> it tastes like flavored salt water. Oh, it was awful. It doesn't taste good. So the, the preps are a lot less volume now. They're a lot less tolerable. And sure, nobody likes to go to the bathroom that frequency. But I think, you know, once that's done, the colonoscopy itself is, is a breeze. Um, you really, most people don't remember it, even though they're conversational through the majority of it. So <laughs> it's, uh, we find out all kinds of secrets. We find out all secrets, <laughs> huh, Ron? Well, so. I, I want to thank you so much for joining us.